so thankful I'm sure we each continue to be for the opportunity that's ours to assemble and to gather this morning already the songs in which we've sung to offer praise unto God and that was actually the wording of some of those songs and how sweet a message that truly is in addition we've also offered a message of prayer unto God making petitions of him and offering our thanks to him it would certainly be a bit remiss on my part not to at this point say that about a dozen of men of our congregation made a journey yesterday, a travel to Murfreesboro, to be a part of the men's workshop that took place at that location. It was a thrilling day, an encouraging day. It was a day when somewhat over 400 men from the, mostly the middle, middle Tennessee area of our country were assembled to be reminded of some very powerful truths in the Word of God as it relates to the nature of Scripture and how trustworthy it is. I might say that while we were there, one of our speakers, Brother Tom Holland, you may remember, held a gospel meeting for us here in May of 2012, and he remembered very fondly the Pippin congregation. He, in fact, asked that we would share with this congregation the fondness with which he still thinks of it and how much he hopes that all continues to be well with us here. Today, as we come to this particular part of our worship, might I invite you to think about the text that was read in our hearing just a moment ago. In the closing part of the second chapter of 1 Timothy, we encounter a set of considerations that will motivate our thinking as we study that particular passage this morning. You'll notice beyond that, here are some introductory thoughts or comments. These comments reminding us of the following. Last Lord's Day, we considered a lesson that at least touched the subject of gender as you and I saw it in the Word of God. We used Deuteronomy 22, verse number 5, as a prompting passage, and we noticed that there God expressly stated that a man and a woman were not to, in fact, dress like the other, not to try to be like the other. And that same thought, of course, entered over into the New Testament as well in verses like 1 Timothy 6, or rather 1 Corinthians 6, verses 9 and 10. But today, as we somewhat develop that a little bit more carefully, our particular consideration will be the assemblies, such as the one in which you and I are now engaged. The assemblies, may I submit, would be a good thing to use as the first part of our lesson, asking what God has to say about them in general, and then using the remainder to challenge us to think about some additional features of those assemblies. Maybe it is with that in mind. Might I invite you to think about just a few verses that speak with such highness and such incredible vitality as it relates to the assemblies. You and I know it so well that as human beings we offer and we have so many roles in life. There are those who are teachers and those who are mechanics and those who are chefs and those who are other occupations of life. There are fathers and mothers and husbands and wives. And we each know that as we go through the matter of life, Many things are asked of us and activities on a daily basis that are demanded of us. But there is something extraordinarily special about those assemblies, like the one again in which you and I now find ourselves. The Bible, in fact, would say some things like these. I was glad when they said unto me, Let us go up unto the house of the Lord. Psalm 122, verse number 1. And notice how the word assembly is used in this passage in Psalm 89, verse number 7. We are there admonished to appreciate the fear that should be characteristic of our understanding of what occurs in the assemblies. On that occasion, 
We appreciate that God is greatly to be feared in the assembly of the saints. Now notice the word assembly is there utilized. And even in that Old Testament era, David made recollection of the specialness with which the assembly should be viewed. A healthy fear of God is appreciated. His authority is understood and proclaimed. Maybe it's with that thought in mind, you'll notice we are expressly commanded not to forsake them. They not only have the benefit of honoring and exalting God, but they're good for us. They keep us grounded on what's important and grounded on what truly is vital and essential in life. No wonder Jesus said, Thou shalt worship the Lord thy God, and Him only shalt thou serve, Matthew 14. Later in Hebrews 10, verse 25, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is. There were those in that first century era who had made a habit. They'd made it a routine to forsake the assembly, and the Hebrew writer says, don't do that. May you and I still understand the seriousness that comes then with absenting ourselves from the assemblies. But as you look at the nature of those assemblies, we understand that when we do meet, we lift high not our preference or our opinion, but we lift high the banner of course, of what God demands concerning them. Didn't Jesus say in John 4, 24, God is a spirit, and they that worship Him must worship Him in spirit and in truth. And forevermore there shall be the importance of that verb must. He didn't say they should, they might, they perhaps. He said they must. Any other worship will not be accepted. It must be offered both in spirit and in truth. No wonder in Colossians 3.17 then, the, the writer on that occasion, the peerless apostle Paul, he said, it's beginning in verse 16, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your heart to the Lord. And then he said, Whatsoever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks unto God and the Father by Him. We are told then that we so lovingly serve beneath the banner of His authority. And whatever we do should be done by virtue of thus saith the Lord on His part. It's not our interest to substitute what we prefer, what we think, what others may suggest is better or right. We want to simply do what God says is appropriate. It is with that in mind you'll notice some of these following comments. We know so very well as it comes to those assemblies that the Word of God makes demand that they always be done with decency and with order. Never should they be chaotic. Never should they be frenetic. Never should they be outside the bounds of what would be recognized as a proper order. For our God is not the God of confusion. He's a God that in fact likes and desires and demands order. That's true in His material universe and it's true in His worship services. Therefore, when we gather in these assemblies, we do so with a heightened plea that all be done both orderly and in decency. And at the close of that slide, then you'll notice that means there are certain things that both men and women have to understand. Otherwise, it's not a worship service that would be pleasing to God. Now, time won't permit us to look at all the details about those restrictions placed on the men. But we'll, at least in passing, mention a few of them. You may notice in particular, 
Here are some statements, and I have copied these verbatim off, off the internet from the websites of varying congregations. You probably are well aware that in our modern era, there is becoming a significant question about the nature of are women restricted in any way as it relates to the worship services. There's a whole host of those in our world who, again, affiliate themselves with and proclaim themselves members of the Church of Christ who very aggressively say there are no restrictions. They are able, with the blessing of God, so we're told, to do any and everything that a man might do. They assert that there's no impropriety. They assert that there is, by way of Scripture, no restrictions whatsoever. I offer a few evidences of that fact. Here is a bulletin, an actual statement from the bulletin of the Coal Mill Road Church of Christ located in Durham, North Carolina. I would ask you to notice those leading both the opening prayer and presiding at the Lord's table. As you take a look at that, you again will appreciate that examples along this line could be multiplied many times over. Congregations that will utilize females not only to lead an opening prayer, not only to lead singing, not only to engage in any other activity including preaching, Sometimes they serve as elders. Sometimes they serve in a number of other capacities in a public presentation of the service of the church. Maybe as another example, in addition to the bulletin, I've quoted a statement from the Southwest Central Church of Christ located in Houston, Texas. I would ask you to notice in every instance, these are proclamations of churches of Christ. Let me read it to you. We all participate in our time together with both men and women, up front praying, leading, and serving. In this we demonstrate that in Christ there is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, neither male nor female, for we are all one in Christ. You've seen two examples, one from North Carolina and now one from Houston, Texas. We might perhaps add yet another to that consideration. Georgia. Located in Tucker, Georgia, is a congregation known as the North Lake Church of Christ. This statement is a bit lengthier, but the observation will easily be enough to impress us with how, how they approach things. Thus, with confidence in God's leading, we affirm that both men and women who have the desire to serve should be permitted to fully participate in our assemblies, including activities such as reading Scripture, serving communion, teaching or offering prayers. Further, both men and women have served North Lake in the past as ministry leaders, and we reaffirm this practice. As I mentioned, I've tried to be somewhat selective. That's only a representative few. There are websites that maintain listings of churches of Christ in our land which are recognized as gender-inclusive. If you look on the website, they're not hard to find. You'll find that there's roughly about 35 to 40 churches of Christ in our country that are recognized as gender inclusive, openly allowing men and women to do anything one or the other can do and without any restriction whatsoever. You might notice in some of the features of those comments we've noted already, maybe that brings us to ask, our interest is not... And never shall it be what men may think. Our only interest is to ask, what really has God said about it? Because after all, that's the final stay, isn't it? We must be content with and happy with and, yea, lift high that which God has affirmed. 
as we turn to this next slide, why don't we then turn to a couple of passages in the New Testament in which this very topic is addressed. God hasn't left us to figure this out. He has, in fact, made statements very clearly to be understood, and I would ask that we devote a few moments to doing that this morning. You'll notice at the top of this slide, we begin by asserting that by the very nature of God's direction, there is a hierarchy in the nature of His created order that is affirmed for us in 1 Corinthians 11, verse number 3. Moving in the direction from top down, there is God, there is Jesus, there is the man, and there is the woman. And no amount of discussion can ever change the assertion of that passage. Now, with that assertion, we quickly make the observation that that will be a prompting matter to which Paul will turn a number of times in the chapters that follow. But for right now, you and I might notice, and it's very easy to draw the conclusion based on that passage, to state that there's a hierarchy does not state that there's inferiority. Who, for instance, would ever say that Jesus is inferior to God? The Bible on many occasions asserts He is God. He is worthy of worship. He is, in fact, that very one who is the second member of the Godhead. He does not bear inferiority to God. Didn't Paul say in that Philippian letter, chapter 2, verses 5 and following, Every knee shall bow to Him. Every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And in verse 6 of that same chapter, the statement was made that being on an equality with God was not something for him to grasp. He already had it. When you and I then think of hierarchy, we shouldn't think inferiority. They're not the same thing. It is with that in mind that why don't we then turn to 1 Corinthians 14. Again, a passage occurring just a few chapters beyond that initial statement. In chapter 14... Beginning in verse 34 of 1 Corinthians, Paul addresses the very subject that has come before you and me this morning. I would ask that we read verse number 34. Let your women keep silence in the churches, for it is not permitted unto them to speak, but they are commanded to be under obedience, as also saith the law. And if they will learn anything, let them ask their husbands at home, for it is a shame for women to speak in the church. Now those words that you and I just noted are a part of the divine presentation of God. They're a part of the Holy Scriptures, and certainly we would do, do well to strive to note that which is the message of those verses. I've tried to make a few comments First of all, it's easy to conclude based on that chapter alone that an assembly is under consideration. More than once, Paul had made the statement when they had come together, when they'd come together, this was an assembly. As they came together, you'll note the next thing. We also find in that chapter that there was the exercise of spiritual gifts of the first century. There were those that were speaking in tongues, and there were those that were prophesying, and there were those that were healing, and there were those that were engaging in the other activities available to them. Among those spiritual gifts, remember, the two that occupied the discussion for that chapter were these, the speaking in tongues and the prophesying. It would appear, based on those statements of Paul, that the wives of the prophets 
had a great deal of interest in the things going on. Some of them apparently were exercising in one way or another some gifts or they were interrupting their husbands as they exercised their gifts. Either way, one takes a look at that development in the chapter, it leads us to note this. Those women were told not to engage in that kind of behavior. They were told not to do so. Now this is one case in which we notice otherwise in the chapter the men were told not to do some things too. The men weren't always acting as they should have in those assemblies either. Among the things that was told, some of the men were acting disorderly. They were not in fact behaving in that understood way of decency and in order and Paul said don't do that. As he addressed this point concerning the women... Verse number 34, let your women keep silence in the churches. You may in fact notice very interestingly the word silence is used. What does that word mean? Well, let's develop it by noting its definition. The word sigeo, which is that Greek word translated silence, it means to be silent or to hold one's peace. And that word's used a few times in the New Testament. And I've listed a number of them all from the writing of Luke. And as you look back to those contexts, it's easy to, con to conclude and to deduce some things. In Luke 9, 36, Luke 20, 26, and Luke 18, 39, in every instance that word was used, it had to do with a complete and thorough silence with respect to the matter that was under discussion. Sometimes in those instances, Jesus had just done something wonderful or a great miracle, and it says the disciples sigeoed. They didn't tell anybody about it. Now that didn't mean that they didn't talk about any subject. It means with respect to what Jesus told them, they did not speak of it. They didn't talk about it. For His hour was not yet come. Again, the word seems to suggest very powerfully a thorough and complete silence with respect to the point or the matter at hand. No wonder then in light of that, look at how Paul states it. Verses 34 and 35, it's not permitted unto them to speak. Now might we ask, so does that mean a woman can't make any sound of any variety from the time she enters the door to the time she leaves? We would readily affirm, given the context, that's not what that says. With respect to whatever the matter at hand was, she's to be silent, but that doesn't have anything to do with any other subjects at hand. What was the matter at hand? Women taking the lead in the assembly. Speaking, in fact, in such a way that they would deliver a matter of teaching, if you please, to others. Paul says in that regard, she is to keep silent. She hasn't been given the authority and permission from God to do that. You'll notice then at the bottom, we can draw a conclusion based on this passage. When it comes to the assemblies of the church, we've learned that it has not been given from God for the woman to exercise what these women on this occasion were doing. Occupying that role of preeminence. Making the statement, if you please, in relation to the matter of the teaching in those public assemblies. That hasn't been given to her. You'll notice one final thing. In this particular case, let your women keep silence in the churches, and then it's augmented like this. They are commanded to be under obedience, as also saith the law. For verse number 35, it's a shame for women to speak in the church. Now as you and I listen to those words of Paul and reconsider the features of it, might we readily ask, 
this isn't the only passage to which that statement is found or which that idea is located. As you and I come to the next consideration, let's put it together with this one. In 1 Timothy chapter 2, we arrive at another passage which also addresses a topic very similar to this one. As we come to that one, it was the one that occupied our, our text, the reading for our lesson earlier this morning. I would ask you to notice, beginning in verse number 8, I will therefore that men pray everywhere, lifting up holy hands without wrath and doubting. There's one of the statements then that places some restrictions on a man. Men are the ones to lead the prayer, but you'll notice it says they're to lift up holy hands. It would appear that is not a literal presentation of the posture of their body when they lead the prayer. Too many other references make use of something like that as indicative of the nature of the man's life. The man who leads you and me in prayer in these assemblies is to be one whose life is representative of the station he's occupying. If he's going to lead all of us in prayer, he needs to be a godly man, a holy man, one whose life is a representative of the truth of the Word of God. No wonder then it goes on to say, verse number 8, without wrath and doubting. He shouldn't be a man given to contention and faction. He shouldn't be a man given to stirring up trouble and problems. That kind of man, we ought not ask him to be leading our public prayers. Furthermore, verse number 9 and 10 goes on to make a statement in relation to the character of the dress of a woman and the way in which she should present herself. But as Paul develops it beginning in verse 11, he now makes this statement, Let the woman learn in silence with all subjection. But I suffer not a woman to teach, nor to usurp authority over the man, but to be in silence. For Adam was first formed, then Eve... And Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived was in the transgression. With that now, we appreciate some of these comments in which we honestly and interestingly ask what it was that the inspired apostle here shared with us. These comments, it seems, are in order. First of all, it's clear that this is another reference that brings to our mind the thought of those assemblies. Notice back to verse number 8. Paul said, I will that men pray everywhere. Now may we ask, so does that mean a woman can't pray anywhere? That's by no means what that says. You and I would be greatly wrong to read into that what's not there. When it comes to these assemblies, men are the ones, he says, that need to lead the prayers. Now might I ask you to notice, as he develops verse 11, let the woman learn in silence with all subjection. One more time, our interest is just to honestly require an appreciation of that which God has developed. Our interest is not to go beyond what God has said, but it's not to fall short of it either. You'll notice these particular comments. First of all, we have other passages that highlight women can pray. A lady can pray in her house. She is able, in fact, to share moments of prayer in which by way of her own personal prayer. But might we notice, as you and I think about that, verse number 9 then has this statement. Or rather, verse number 11, the woman is to learn in silence with all subjection. May I ask, here's the word silent. And we saw that earlier in 1 Corinthians 14, but it is of great interest to note that it's not the same word in Greek. 
It's a very different word. In this instance, women are to learn in silence with all subjection. One more time, you and I might be quick to ask, does this then say the woman can't utter the slightest sound during the time between she walks in the door and when she leaves? If her five-year-old daughter or son needs to be corrected, can she do it? Can she audibly sing praise to God, obviously using her voice? If a woman were to come forward and she wants to be baptized and we say, Do you believe with all of your heart that Jesus is the Son of God? Can she say, Yes, I do? Good questions. If the word silent is to be construed as absolute and complete silence, then we'd have to answer no to all those questions. But the fact is, that's not what the word says. The Greek word is hesukia. And it never did mean absolute silence. We've already learned from 1 Corinthians 14 that the silence under discussion in that passage was a silence related to the matter that was being discussed at hand, namely her public presentation, the nature of what was involved in the character of what was happening on that occasion. And Paul said, stop it. In this instance, you'll notice this Greek word, hesuki, it means quietness, calmness, tranquility, peacefulness. And it's a bit interesting to notice the other ways in Scripture where that same Greek word appears. For example, look back up in the same chapter, 1 Timothy 2. This time, look at verses 1 and 2. I exhort, therefore, that first of all, supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men, for kings and for all that are in authority, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life with all godliness and honesty. You may have noticed the word quiet that appears in that verse. That's the same Greek word appearing there as is translated over in verse 11 is silence. Now when you and I think about quietness or we think about peacefulness or we think about the features concerning the nature of tranquility, we understand that to bring about a description of the nature of that lady's life, her demeanor, her behavior. It is to be characterized by those adjectives. It doesn't mean absolute silence. In fact, isn't it true the Bible commands a Christian woman to sing? She is to sing praises unto God, and she is to do so in such a way that Ephesians 5.19 identifies that praise to God is to be developed in such a wonderful and powerful fashion in her just like it is in the man. If a lady comes forward and she makes that confession, she can say, Yes, I believe Jesus is the Son of God. This is in no way a statement that contradicts a passage like this one. You notice she isn't making a public sermon. She is not in a position of teaching over men. She's making a statement of affirmation of her belief and making prerequisite for her act in baptism. You'll notice in light of that, verse number 12, Paul elaborates on this by saying, I suffer not a woman to do what? Now he specifies, in light of this submissiveness, in spite of the tranquility that should be characteristic of her, he says it's not becoming of her. It is not in harmony with that which is the will of God for her, verse 12, to teach in the usurpation of authority over the man. Now there, you and I have come to a very vital appreciation, haven't we? Might I, I might ask you to notice, 
these two passages that we've seen. Corinth was a city located a pretty fair distance from Ephesus. And yet Paul gave very similar statements to each one. It was the way in which God directed the churches in that ancient era. Not just one of them, but all of them. No wonder in verse 12, I suffer not a woman to teach. Now let's pause a moment and ask this. So does that forbid any and every kind of teaching to the woman? We immediately run into trouble if we say yes. Because after all, think again about what you and I do as we sing. When we open that book or we audibly profess praise to God, notice what exactly we are doing according to Colossians 3.16. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another. In that sense, as a woman sings, she's teaching. Now, is it a teaching that contradicts the passage before us? Clearly not. The teaching here has reference to the deliverance of a didactic discourse. Call it a sermon if you like. Call it a prepared presentation in which she exerts an authority over men. That is forbidden to her in the assemblies. You might notice then, I suffer not a woman to teach, nor to usurp authority over the man, but to be in silence. At this point, as you and I then notice something, we saw a few examples near the beginning of the lesson where some congregations take a very different approach to this. They look upon it very differently than apparently what this text would assert. You and I might wonder how they do that at the bottom of that slide. There's in a presentation that prepares us to move to the next one. We've then learned that these assemblies that we highlighted at the outset of the lesson occupied this role, and in it, God has placed restrictions on the man and He's replaced restrictions on the woman. And we've noticed that one of them on the woman, she's not to usurp authority over the man, she is not to deliver the didactic discourses. At this point, we arrive at this conclusion. And it's really a pretty good question. So what about these congregations that see it differently? How do they interpret these passages? What do they do with them that allows them to set them aside and to assert that apparently they do not assert what we have found that they do? Every case that I have found, without exception, every case in which they make an explanation asserts that these comments, quite frankly, were cultural in character. They were meant for the women of the first century, not for all women of all time. I would only ask this. Before we ever conclude that a passage is cultural only, there must be some guide in the text that leads us to that conclusion. Is there a guide like that here? There are two passages, two verses that were read earlier. It's time to finish their lesson with them. Verses 13 and 14, Paul tells us the reason for this submissiveness of women. He tells us we are not left to guess or to wonder. He tells us absolutely what the reason is. Let's note the wording again. Verse 13, note the word for. The word for is occupying the role of a conjunction. It's a continuation of the thought by way of explanation. For Adam was first formed, then Eve. And then verse 14, Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived was in the transgression. This submissiveness of women might, you and I, 
embed the following thought in our mind. Those two verses have nothing to do with culture. Absolutely nothing. In fact, as Paul made observation and elaboration, he went all the way back to the creation. And it was there that he made the statement, For Adam was first formed, and then Eve. You and I perhaps can look forward to asking God when we get to heaven about the deep and profound appreciations that took place at the creation. But the fact was, he made the man first. And when he made the woman, she was made as a helpmeet for him, Genesis 2.18. And you notice from that point forward, there was an appreciation about this nature. He was formed first. That led Paul to make conclusion that then the women are not permitted to usurp authority over the man. But not only that, when it came to the actual sin that took place in Genesis 3, it says Adam was not deceived, but she was. Now you and I both know Adam sinned. We know she did too. But there was something very different about the character and the nature of their sins. She believed the devil. In that conversation with the serpent, she believed him. At least she fell for what he taught her. Adam did not do that. He believed her. She gave the food to him and he partook of it. He made his mistake and he sinned. But the devil then didn't directly deceive Adam. He deceived the woman. Because of those two reasons. The God of heaven said then that the conclusion obtains that women are not to usurp authority over the man in the assemblies. And you and I would then call into serious question all of those things about those churches we noted earlier. It's a tragedy. But may I say that those thoughts and those activities are moving in our direction pretty quickly. May we be wary of and ever interested in the things that the Word of God teaches the silence of women in the assemblies. One final slide then will be ours this morning, and then the lesson will be yours. We've had an interest in wondering about the nature, again about gender as it manifests itself in the roles of the worship. We have noticed restrictions on the woman. She's not to usurp authority over the man. She's not to deliver the didactic discourses. That's not been placed for her to do. And that's been true really ever since the nature of what occurred at the creation. It has nothing to do with the culture of the first century. has nothing to do with the culture of the Middle Ages. Nothing to do with the culture of the Middle Eastern part of the world. It is a fact that obtains based on these two passages. May you and I lift high the banner of the truth of God, striving always to worship in the way He would have us to do it. Aren't we thankful for God's revelation? Aren't we thankful we can know what He wants and we can offer worship to Him in spirit and in truth? It might be today that there's someone in the audience who finds yourself distant from God. Maybe you have never obeyed Him initially. Although the gospel invitation has been extended many times, you have never responded in faith to it. We would urge you to do that today. Because the God of heaven is calling. Oh, how earnestly He's calling. And the sun hanging on the cross is a timeless message of the seriousness of that call. If you need to respond today, do that by belief, by repentance, by confession and baptism. And we'd be delighted to immerse you into Christ. If we could have or be of assistance to one who has wandered astray. You've left your first love in the words of Revelation 2.5. Why not come back today? As you realize God's demand, you must repent of your sins and confess them. 
And then when faithful brethren pray to God on your behalf, He'll forgive you. We'd be delighted to do that for you today. If we could be of help to you in any of these ways, won't you at once hasten and come while together we stand and while we sing?